You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, we've got uh, five kiddos, four boys and one girl. And, and, and if I'm being honest, our kids are about 98% the same. Uh, they, they all uh, not just look the same. They all uh, have certain characteristics like um, supersized adenoids and tonsils that just, I think, DNA and genetically make them the same. But behaviorally, there's a lot of similarities amongst them. And one of the similarities, and I distinctly remember this with one of our kids when they were about four or five, our kids, if you've met them, are not wallflowers. Like, if you've met a Collins kid, you're like, yeah, okay, I get it. Like... They get their good looks from Rachel, uh, and they get their rambunctiousness from Michael. And so, like, our kids are passionate, right? Like, just emotional and passionate, and that's a really beautiful thing because they can love really hard. Um, It's also a really struggling thing around that three, four, five age as they're just learning to talk because they get really passionate about everything. And that means when they're sad, they're really sad. And when they're angry, they are really angry. And when they're fearful, they're really fearful. And when they're hurt, they're really hurt. And so we we go through this phase around that four or five age where we, we try and encourage them that those emotions, that they have words that they can use. And I distinctly remember with one of our kids, we were really struggling in, in this and so when they would get really angry and they would, they would hit or if they got really frustrated and they would kind of throw a fit or whatever it was in these big, kind of bold, passionate ways, we said, hey, listen, here's what we're going to do. Rachel and I, we had like this strategy session because, you know, we were like really intentional, well-planned and thought out parents. Uh, if you knew uh, us well, you would not believe that. Uh, so we, we got together and we're like, hey, let's try and slow this down. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to try and help our kids just walk slowly through these emotions. And so they would, they would get upset or they would get hurt or they would get angry. And, and, and we, we were like, here's the questions we're going to ask them. We're going to ask them like, hey, is it okay that you feel this way? Right? And, and how does this feeling make you want to react? And, and, and are those reactions, are they, are they good for you? And, and how do those reactions impact other people? We had this great plan. But we, we quickly realized we ran into an issue, and here was the issue. We never got past the first question. Because with one of our kids, we would say to him over and over again, hey, is it okay that you feel sad? And they would be like, no. And we're like, no, no, it, it is okay that you feel sad. Or, or the next time they would, they would get hurt and they would, you know, kind of lash out and we'd go, hey, 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 is it okay that you're hurt? And they would go, no. And we're like, no, buddy, it, it is okay that you feel those things, right? He just couldn't disconnect how he was feeling from the reactions that he was having of those emotions, Now, now here's why I I tell you that story this morning. Because the truth is, for many of us as Christ followers, if I asked you as a Christian, is it okay for you to fear? Most of you, whether you'd say it out loud or just functionally believe it, would say, no. 
Is it okay for you to be anxious? Say no. Is it okay for you to struggle? Say no. Depression, confusion, doubt, pain, hurt. The truth is that most of us hold a a stoic theology. Or or, or maybe another way to say it, we, we hold a stoic orthopraxy. Uh, the orthodoxy means truth, core truth of what it means to be a Christ follower. Orthopraxy means how that core truth actually plays itself out in our lives. And most of us hold an orthopraxy that says the way to be a good Christian is to be unfazed by this world. Right? It's why we develop uh, sayings like have a stiff upper lip. Right, or, or it's why we say things like uh, "fake it until you make it." Right, or, or for all the guys in the room, right? Real men, they don't what? They don't cry. Right, it's this idea that the the highest pursuit that we have as Christ followers is to be this kind of wall that is impenetrable in the face of storms of life that we would stand so firm that we wouldn't be impacted by pain or sorrow or difficulty. And and here's here's the only problem that I have with it. It's a small one. It just doesn't exist in Scripture. But it doesn't. We are not Stoics, and we're not made by a Stoic God. Pastor Adam said this beautifully last week. We have an emotional God. He is described throughout Scripture as a God that celebrates, as a God that rejoices, as a God that's angry, as a God that is jealous, as a God that is in love with his people. We have a Savior in Jesus that was known as a man of sorrows, who was vehemently angry who seethed in anger, and not just at the Pharisees, but at death, who wept with his friends, and oh, by the way, who was fearful on the night that he was betrayed. We have a God, and we were created in the image of a God who is emotional. See, most of us have these emotions that we go, like, if I said to you, hey, we're, we're emotional people, you'd go, no, I get it. Yeah, of course. Right? But most of us divide emotions into good emotions and bad emotions. Right? Can we be honest for two seconds? If I asked you to divide up in your life good emotions and bad emotions, none of you would go, Michael, I just can't do that. Right? You'd be like, okay, yeah, happiness, contentment, rest, peace, joy, good emotions. Anger, bad emotion. Jealousy, bad emotion. Fear, bad emotion. Anxiety, bad emotion. But is that actually how Scripture talks about it? Is that actually what Scripture shows us? And what I'll tell you is that our emotions, all of them, are given to us by God. The question ends up being, what do we do with our emotions? But here's here's what I want to focus in on this morning. Let me give you two purposes for our emotions that I think will give us guardrails as we go through this sermon series, Doctrine and Emotion, how how the Psalms give voice to our experiences. Here's two motivations 
for our emotions, two purposes. Here's what they do. Number one, our emotions help us to experience the world around us. Right? Our emotions help us to experience the world around us. Right? That includes the grace and the goodness of God. It, inc- it includes the beauty of creation. It includes the joy of relationship and fellowship that we have. And it also includes the brokenness of the world that we find ourselves in. It includes the fact that emotions help us to experience the impacts of sin, the loss that we feel in a world that is marred by death and destruction. Emotions have a purpose, and one of them is to help us experience the world around us. The second is that emotions draw us to the Lord. Emotions help us experience the world around us, and they lead us, they help to draw us to the Lord. Listen, our emotions, our experiences, like everything, are meant to culminate in the Lord. He is before all things. All things were created through him and by him and for him. Which means that our emotions, our experience, our desires, the deepest kind of groanings and longings of our heart are meant to lead us to the Lord. And if our emotions do those two things, if they help us to experience the world around us and lead us to the Lord, all emotions can be utterly good things in our life. And so we're going to look at Psalm 55, a psalm of fear this morning, and I want you to ask and look for those two things. How does fear and these emotions lead David to experience the world around him, and how do they lead David, and how do they lead us to the presence of the Lord? Now here's my one caveat as we jump in. If you've been here before, you know that at this point in time, I typically give you three points that we're going to walk through from left to right, okay? I'm not going to do that this morning, and there's a really simple answer. It's easy for me to give you three linear points that build off of each other when I'm walking through a logical argument, when we're walking through a story that has a narrative arc, or when I'm walking through some doctrinal treatise, but guess what? The Psalms are declarations of experiences and emotions, and if I know anything about my own life, it's that emotions aren't linear, and experiences aren't linear. Most of us, in the depths of our emotions and experiences, feel far more like a spinning top than we do that we're walking a straight line, and if I'm being honest, David experiences the same thing here in Psalm 55. So let's jump in together. David begins and says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me. Answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. They drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. The the psalmist David likely begins with a cry to the Lord. He, he cries out, give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. 
David actually, when he begins this cry to the Lord, is actually hearkening back to a command that God gave to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, in, In that chapter, the Lord essentially says to the nation of Israel, you shall not turn a blind eye to your neighbor in times of need. That no matter how inconvenient it is for you, if you see that your neighbor has a need, you are meant to be a people that meets those needs. And David is essentially turning those words back to the Lord. He says to the Lord, in effect, God, I know that all of your commands reflect your heart. And if this was your command for us, surely you are a God that will not turn a blind eye to me. Instead, God, see me in my time of trouble. Now now listen, in the Psalms, there are primarily three audiences. Okay, some Psalms are are written to the psalmist himself, right? Why are you downcast, O my soul? That's just a few of the Psalms. A few other Psalms are written to the people of Israel, but the bulk of the Psalms are written from man to God, right? Perhaps the most common phrase in all of the Psalms is, O Lord, how long, O Lord, right? Again and again, if you just kind of start with Psalm 1 and work your way through, you'll see repeatedly within the first sentence of about 80 to 90% of them, they begin with, O Lord. The Psalms are, are amazing. They are something for us to saturate in because quite honestly, they're the only book that exists that are written specifically for us to have words to speak to the Lord. The Psalms is nothing if not a teacher that gives us an understanding of how to be in relationship with the Lord. And so David says to the Lord, give ear to my prayer, O God. Hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me. Answer me. He says, I am restless in my complaint. Uh, That word restless in the original Hebrew, is actually an action word. It means to, to wander about, right? It, it's, it's like an aimless wanderer. If, you, if you've ever looked at someone and you're like, man, where are they going? I don't understand what they're doing, right? It's this aimless wandering, he feels. I am restless in my complaint. And here's why I love this. Here's why I love that this word restless is an action word. And I don't think, as a matter of fact, I know because the perfection of our Holy Spirit ordained all of these words, that that word is not by accident. And here's why. Fear, in this case, and pain and suffering and and hardship in so many other cases, is not simply something for us to get over. Instead, it is something for us to walk through and specifically to walk with the Lord through. See what David says? Attend to me. Literally, be with me. Answer me as I wander in this complaint. As we're about to see, that complaint is one of fear. David says to the Lord, what I need is not first for you to pluck me up out of this. I need you to wander with me, God. 
Because though I wander when you are there, then moment by moment, even these complaints are working together for my good. Much like sorrow and suffering and emotions like fear, hurt, and discontentment, they're not simply things for us to get around or over or through. They are for us to walk with and experience the presence of our Lord. Why is he complaining? Because, he says, the noise of the enemy, the oppression of the wicked, trouble that they are dropping upon him. He is surrounded by an enemy that desires to consume him. He goes on in verse 4, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear, trembling come upon me. Horror overwhelms me. Hear hear those words. What are the words that stick out here? Anguish, terror, fear, trembling, horror. This is David, the warrior king. This is the covenant head of the people of God. And here's what that means. It means when God looks at his people, he sees first the, the head, right, Adam, in the garden was the, the head of the people of God. He was our representative. David, when he was anointed king, became the representative of the people of God. And finally, for us, praise God, Jesus is now our representative. But what it means that David is the covenant head is that when David walks through these things, when he feels these emotions, when he relates to God in this way, it's an example for us that this is not out of the norm. That the people of God should expect that if the king is going to walk through these things, they should expect it too. And if the king is going to need to experience these things and rely upon the Lord, then they should too. And so for us, when we want to go, I need a stiff upper lip. I shouldn't experience fear. My knees shouldn't buckle. I would point you to the covenant head of the people of God, the warrior king, the man after God's own heart, and say, perhaps it's not that you ought not experience fear, but that when we experience fear, we should with expectation Look forward to what the Lord is going to do in us, through us, and with us. Next. David trembles, he shakes, he quakes at the horror that is before him. He goes on and he says, I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away, I would lodge in the wilderness, I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind, and tempest. David goes on to describe what's in his heart, what this fear is making him desire. He says, I want to escape. I want to be done with it. Now, now this is where we get uncomfortable, right? Because if you're following along, which hopefully you are, right? We're not too far into the sermon. You shouldn't be asleep yet. Someone should be saying, Michael, you just said 
that when we experience fear or pain or suffering, that we shouldn't just try and get through it, but that we should walk with the Lord in the midst of it, right? Did you guys hear me say that? One of you heard me. All right, here's my fear. Do we need to start over? Right? No, I said that pretty clearly. So most of you should be thinking that if you're listening. And that's true. We should not just try and get through it, but we should walk with the Lord in the midst of it. But it doesn't change the fact that our heart often goes there. And David does not fake his emotions for the sake of having right doctrine. Instead, he is honest with the Lord about where he is and what he is experiencing so that the Lord can lead him into right doctrine. Some of you guys need to hear that you're not the Holy Spirit. I counsel a lot of you guys. And and before I even get a chance to remind you of what the Lord has said or pray that the Spirit would lead you in there, you short-circuit the work of the Lord by going, but I know but I know, but I know. And you know what my response typically is? And maybe I don't say it. Maybe the Lord gives me grace to hold my tongue, but my response is, do you? Because I'm looking at you, and that's not what you're experiencing. Right doctrine and how we're feeling don't have to be mutually exclusive. Your faith is not complete yet, and nor is mine. So be honest with the Lord and allow him and the power of the spirit that indwells us to lead you into right doctrine. He says, I want to escape. That's what my heart feels. And then he goes on and he describes what it is he wants to escape from or what it is that's bringing about this fear in him. He says, destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues. I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. It's not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. It is you, a man my equal, my companion and familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house as we walked with the throng, but now let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. David explains the causes of his suffering, the causes of his fear, and they're twofold. One, his people are under attack, and two, he's been betrayed. Now, it might sound at first reading like there are two different instances that are kind of vexing David that are leading him into this place, but I don't think they're two instances. I think they are one instance, and David is showing us two different sides of suffering. Here's what I mean by that. Suffering, first, it does something to us as individuals. Suffering and fear and pain and hardship it ought to connect us with those people around us. Let me say that again. Suffering, fear, pain, hardship ought to connect us with others around us rather than isolate us. 
David, before he even gets to his own individual pain from betrayal, sees pain and suffering all around him. Remember what I said, emotions, one of the purposes is to help us to experience the world around us, but you don't live in the world by yourself and nor do I. So as I experience the brokenness of this world, the fallen nature of the world around us and the people around us, it should make me sympathize and empathize with what you're going through as well because you live in that same broken world. You suffer from those same impacts of sin and death. David looks out and realizes that others are under the same assault of the enemy that others are also facing death and loss, that others are also waiting for the Lord to redeem and heal. Church, we're, we're a really, really private culture. Never more so than when things get hard. Right, one of the things that I lament most, if I'm being honest, about being your pastor, about being the pastor of all of Mercy's Door, is that without fail, when life gets hard, when marriage gets hard, when sin flares up, when doubts creep in, do you know what people tend to do in the church? They tend to run from the church. They tend to pull back, they tend to cover up, they tend to put their head down and believe we're gonna make it through ourselves. And it's in that very instance where the Lord would have us not bring our eyes in, but cast our eyes out to see you also struggle with sin and temptation. You also wrestle with being a sinner in relationship with other sinners. That you also suffer pain and suffering and loss and disappointment in your life. And David sees that as well. It says, the gates, the city, my city, God, your people are under attack. And then he goes on to say, and I am also suffering a particular hardship. Right? Our emotions are common and they're also personal. They link us to each other, but they are also individual for us. And for David... It seems to be that whoever this enemy that is attacking him is one that he used to know and love and be close with. Now, scholars tend to debate, you know, maybe this was Absalom or, or a former advisor of his. And one of the things that I love about the Psalms when you read it is oftentimes the Psalms are not that specific. They don't give us names. And again, I think this is God's wisdom. Because if I had a name here and a situation here, you know what I could say? Well, I've, I've never had an advisor while I was king that betrayed me and then attacked my guarded and fortified city. Guess I can't relate with that. Right? If you're not chuckling, maybe you've had that before, in which case I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'll let you buy me coffee because you used to be king. Right? But, but that's not what it is. Instead, it's vague enough to be able to go someone or something that David counted on. Someone or something that used to bring David comfort or joy that he had placed his hope in has now betrayed him or let him down. 
And if we're honest, isn't that the very definition of fear? Fear comes when the things that we have placed our hope in or the people that we have placed our hope in, the things or the people that we have counted on for pleasure or joy or comfort or rest fail us or threaten to fail us. And that's what David experiences. The one that he has counted on has failed him, is failing him. Let's continue on. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and I moan. He hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage for many are arrayed against me. David finally shows us what to do with our fear in verse 16. He says, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. But I call to God and the Lord will. Right? That's confidence. Not he might, not he may, not I hope, but he will save me. Right? This is where we turn from the face of fear and doubt and we turn towards the Lord and we Trust him. This is the faith that we all desire and we should all be leaning into, asking the Lord for. A faith that looks at fear or loss or doubt in the face and then turns to the Lord and says, but I trust in you. I know that you will save me. Right? This is the fear that Jesus admonishes us to have or to, to, to ask for. Do not fear. This is the, the, the faith that Paul is, admonishes us towards. Do not be anxious in anything. But look at the next sentence. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and I moan, and he hears my voice. Do you notice what just happened there? Right? If you and I were writing the psalm, we'd cut it off right at 16. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. Done. Mic drop. Let's march out of here and go. But what does David say? He says, I, I do call to God. And I do trust that he will save me. And then the morning comes. And you know what I got to do again? I got to call to God again. And I got to ask that he will save me again. And then noon comes around. And I've got to call to God again, and I've got to ask him again that he will save me. And then evening comes around. Right? Again, he declares what is true. He declares where his hope in, and he recognizes that his faith is moment by moment in the presence of God. And so morning and noontime and evening, he's back on his face before the Lord saying, Please, God. Save me, grant me faith again, bolster me in the time of my doubt and fear, be with me. Right? This is not a set it and forget it type of faith. And if you're here and you don't know that analogy you're saying, it's because you're not old enough to stay up at light, night and watch infomercials. But if you are, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody wants to set it and forget it. I've tried that with parenting for 13 years. It doesn't work. And most of us try it with our faith. 
I've told you the story of a couple that I, I probably was the first marital counseling I ever did, and they walked in after their first big fight. They were like a year into marriage, and I said, hey, how are you guys doing? Last time we talked, you were not in a good place. And this was like, by the way, like three days later. And they were like, we're great. We figured it all out. We fixed it. And I was like, ah. You know what happened two days later? We were sitting, we were doing some more counseling on that same exact issue. Right? Like all of us want to be like, plant the flag, conquered, done, and that's not the life. You know why that's not the life? What would happen if you conquered all your fears right now? Now, I'm going to tell you, lest you believe something else, and if you want to come argue with me, I'd love to have the conversation. You'd walk away from your neediness of God. You'd go, thank you, God, for your help. I got it from here. You know why I know that? Because you and I do it every day. And David tells us that's not the story that God is writing. David finishes up with a flurry of statements, but the culmination of Psalm 55 comes in Psalm, in verse 22. He says, cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Now again, this is coming from a man, as Pastor Brett said a couple weeks ago, when he preached on sorrow, that has experienced hardship like most of us could only fathom. But he says, cast all your burdens on the Lord. He will sustain you. Now, burdens, by the way, we, we read that and we think, cast all your heaviness, right? All the things that really weigh you down. But you know what burdens literally means? Anything you carry. Anything at all. Anything you claim is your responsibility, any place where you feel like you must be enough or where you must provide, cast all of those on the Lord and he will sustain you because he is a God that sustains you. You know, as I was finishing up prep, I was just asking the Lord, God, what, what do you want our people, what do you want me to take away from this? And I want you to take away those first two purposes that we talked about. That emotions, even the bad ones like fear, are good and can be vibrant parts of our walk with Jesus when they help us to experience the world around us and when they lead us to the Lord. But there's one more hope I think I hope you have, which is seeing your God rightly. I'll end with, with this. A, a year ago, in the midst of COVID, um, one of Rachel and I's friends from, from grad school, uh, they had seven kids. Um, and we were always really impressed by them because they have more kids than us, uh, which is impressive because it feels like we have a lot of kids. Um, and they had seven kids, and in the midst of COVID, I don't know if it was just one of those. No, I guess it was not, right? Because I was going to say maybe one of those, it's what happens when you quarantine with your spouse at home um, kind of situations. But they had a, a child in the midst of COVID. And uh, they had this beautiful baby girl. But within just a couple weeks of the baby being born, they found out, one, that the baby, this baby girl had severe life-threatening birth defects. 
And two, mom found out that she had an aggressive form of breast cancer. And again, this is in the midst of COVID. And so for months, they lived in New Mexico. She had to travel to Houston to be treated by doctors because of this fairly rare and incredibly aggressive form of cancer while dad would take baby to another hospital hundreds of miles away to have incredibly invasive and, again, life-threatening surgery to fix what was wrong. And, and she started to blog in the beginning of all this process, and I remember the thought process with Rach. It, it started as we read her blogs, and they were really beautiful of kind of being in awe of her faith. Well, I take that back. It started by us crying. It, it started by us hurting for her and hurting for the baby and just wondering, God, why, why does this stuff happen? And then she would blog about the faith that the Lord was sustaining her with, and we would marvel at her faith and just go, my goodness, how can you have faith like that? And then it moved from there to where we were really encouraged, man, God, if, if, if you're going to do this with her in the midst of that, then God, do this with me, and we desired this for our own faith. And you know where it finally, just this morning, we got another update, and Rach read me this blog. You know where it ended? It ended with us just looking at the Lord and saying, God, you're actually really, really, really good. Like in the midst of all of these stories, you're there and you are tender and you are kind and you don't cast us off though we are dust. In fact, God, you have entered in and become dust like us. You've entered into our suffering. You have tasted the sting of death and through that you have made a way to heal and redeem and so church here's where i want you to leave psalm 55 and experiencing fear know that your god is good cast your burden on the lord he will sustain you pray with me Oh, Father, your goodness is evident. God, it is undeniable, and yet we confess we do our best to deny it sometimes. We get so caught up in our own ability that we think we have to control or combat or be enough ourselves. We do enough to numb our emotions, our fear, our doubt. Whatever it might be, God, we cover up tight enough to believe and to deny your goodness. And God, the worst of it is we miss it. We miss you. And Father, you're here. And you offer yourself to us. God, you have literally moved heaven and earth to bring us back to you. And so, Father, my prayer, as much as I want you to take the things that cause us fear away, as much as I would love for us to no longer ever taste fear or anxiety or doubt, God, far more do I desire for us to constantly taste your goodness. And so would you do that in us and through us this morning, oh God? Church, I'm going to lead us now into a time where we respond to the good news of the gospel.
And the way that we do that is not by first going and doing, but is by being. Is by being those that are needy. By being those created in the image of God and ultimately by being those who, because of Jesus, have a heavenly Father. We do that through prayer. And so we're going to take a few moments. You can pray by yourself. You can lean over, pray with a spouse or a friend or a loved one. You can get up and go and pray with people from your gospel community. But we respond to the Lord because that's who we need. And that's ultimately where we want to go. And so don't worry about praying the right things. Scripture says that the Spirit will pray the perfect prayer for you. Your highest prayer right now might simply be a groan or an exhale of not knowing what to do or not knowing what you need, but you can trust that your heavenly Father who rules the world knows exactly what's good for you, and he'll give it to you. So let's take a few moments and pray, and then I'll come back up, and I'll lead us into communion. Let's pray.